Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. On today's podcast, author A.W. Hammond joins me to discuss his new thriller, The Berlin Trader. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I can't wait to tell you more about my novel, Jack Reach Around, The Dubbo Detective, here on Big Squid. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Big Squid. We are between seasons, but I am a big fan of A.W. Hammond, uh, my good friend Alex, who is a wonderful writer, uh, and especially his last two books, The Paris Collaborator and his new novel, The Berlin Trader. Fantastic reads, absolute unputdownable thrillers. Unput downable? Anyway, it's been a long week. I'm recording this on a Friday. But you know what I mean. It's a, a cracking book, and I was really keen to have him on the podcast and uh, discuss it. And uh, hopefully, if you haven't read uh, either of his books, uh, maybe inspire you to go and check them out as well. Uh, two quick things. Uh, I want longtime Big Squid listeners to really give me some props. I really want some respect from you, because there's a point where Alex mentions Jack Reacher, and I make no Jack Reacher around jokes. And it was hard. It was really hard. I figured he wouldn't know what I was talking about. So I, so I held off, and I put that joke in the intro. So, as I said, I don't ask for much. <laughs> but just really give me two thumbs up for my restraints at not being childish at that moment when he mentions Jack Reacher in a very innocent moment of discussion. Uh Also, in the interview, uh, Alex tries to remember a novel by Scott Lynch, and he draws a blank. And then, classic podcasting, two minutes after we stop recording, he sends me a text message saying, I've remembered what the book is, and it's The Republic of Thieves. So, now, when we get to that point in the interview, and we're quite clearly flailing around, you'll know exactly what it is we were searching for. 
but anyway, it's a, it's a fun little moment and you'll know what the book is. I'll pop by at the end, but now let's bring in Alex to discuss his wonderful book, The Berlin Trader. So we are recording this the day after Michael Gambon uh, passed away, and uh, I don't know about you because we're you know similar of age. Uh, my introduction to him was Dennis Potter's The Singing Detective back in the eighties, and uh, that was a a TV series that had a huge influence on me because I just at that point in my life never seen anything like it where it was a kitchen sink drama but it was the detective story and it was a story about a man you know trapped in his uh own skin condition hallucinating yes. getting the real world confused with what was going on and I was wondering uh as a detective fan had you ever seen that series I have but my my memory is hazy on it um for that one I think the one that was influential for me from the 80s was um uh, uh, now, now that you've asked me, I've gone. Oh, what is it from the eighties that was influential? Was <laughs> um, the environmental thriller with uh, about nuclear reactors? Um, oh, Edge, Edge, of, Edge Darkness. of Darkness. There yes. we go. I knew I'd get there with the uh, with the Eric Clapton soundtrack guitars yes. <laughs> raging back, over. Yeah, back when we felt like we could like Eric Clapton before he started yeah. <laughs> saying all his political thoughts. You're like, oh, Eric, just keep playing guitar, mate. <laughs> Yeah, but that was uh, yeah. So, but I do I do remember particularly the surreal sort of you know the the the, the hallucinations from that, um, and also the skin condition. I just hadn't seen anything like that before. Like it was really distressing, and yeah, th- there was um, there was a sort of humanistic element to it too. That was uh, I think, and that, that you've made reference to, like in the terms of the kitchen sink drama side of it. But it felt very real, you know, at yes. the same time. Yeah. Um, it also uh, was very funny too. Uh, so I'd never really seen yeah. something that, like the Gambon skin condition, as you said, is quite confronting and yes. uh, you know de- de- uh, depicted in a, in a very honest kind of way. But then you, you kind of had the the, the two uh, patients who were like a like an uh, an English Greek chorus who were discussing mm. what was going on and characters uh, going from the real world to the, the hallucination and backwards and forwards. Uh, I, I recently rewatched it. You can find all of the episodes on YouTube and was oh okay absolutely chuffed to find that it still holds up. I should give it a revisit. Yeah, because yeah. as I said, very hazy on my memory on it, but yeah. Gambon, yeah, Gam- yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, most people know him from Harry Potter, but um, yeah, I, I don't know if you ever saw Layer Cake. Um, yes, a long time ago. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was great in that because he kind of brought that kind of um, gravitas and sort of because he was Irish, right? I think. Uh, I don't know, but yeah. he had that. He sort of that very plum in English accent. Yeah. But he 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 was he was it's a crime thriller. It's an English crime thriller, but um, he brings a kind of plumminess but then to a sort of sort of street edge to the character to it and he's quite memorable in that as well yeah uh one of those uh ones where you look and you see his age and you go oh like 82 that's that's a good innings but you're still yep. bummed out at the same time uh but uh what was the um what was your introduction to the world of detective stories was it was it edge of darkness or was it before that uh so it 
I think filmically, well, televisually, vis- filmically was we would have been Edge of Darkness definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, but then, um, and also the, the bleak eighties of Thatcher, Thatcherite Britain, I think yes. too, has sort of influenced me um, in that respect. But uh, for me too was Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Um, for the short stories, you know, he, he wrote those series there, and I, I referenced that in the sense of. Duchenne being named after um, Dupin, who's Poe's yeah. detective. And then also, um, I think, um, Chandler um, early on. So that's one of the other influences there, sort of from the pulp, pulp side of things. Um, but very quickly, I think, in terms of like the most the most influential for me as a thriller, was, and we may have spoken about this before previously, Silence mm. of the Lambs. That's the yeah. thing that made me think, oh, man, I would love to write a good thriller. And I, you know, yeah. I, I don't even think I'm close to the... the, the the genius of that novel, um, and and it's it's absolutely worth a read. For I mean, lots of people have seen the film. Obviously, very famous one, heaps Academy Awards, right? But um, as a, as a novel, it's it's just the structure and the and the the way that language is used in it is so precise. It's yeah. remarkable. It's a remarkable what um, Thomas Harris is able to do with that book. So that was the one that made me really aspire to try to write thrillers. Crime thrillers. Well, you know, yeah. I, I feel like your latest book, uh, The Berlin Trader, is uh, your best yet. And I read it uh, in one plane sitting, which is uh, oh. kind of uh, on my way over to uh, South Korea. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it on the way over. I'll read a little bit of it uh, while I'm over there. I'll read a little bit of it on the way back. And uh, once I landed in uh, South Korea, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to find another book. Uh, it's uh, the first question I have to ask you, though, your main character of uh, August Duchenne. Why do you hate him? Because that opening <laughs> chapter, I was reading it like thinking, man, this is a, a brutal opening to a character that I already have affection for from your previous book, The Paris Collaborator. Oh, well, that, well first off, thank you. Um, I, thanks for saying that about the book. Um, yeah, it's a, you always put something out there and you're not, you sort of well, personally, I try to, you know, would love to feel that it's, you know, improving every time, but it's always great to hear that. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, well, I guess it's the Chandler thing I referenced, right? Like, yeah. I kind of come from that that idea that to make it interesting, you really want to put the character through the ringer and have them, you know, and, and at the same time, I want to write an interesting first chapter that sort of really yeah. pushes people into the into the world and immediately sort of says to them, hey, pay attention, um, you know, some stuff's going to happen here um yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but that it's that noir you know um you know uh hard-boiled where characters constantly getting beaten up and 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 um and and things happen to them um you know all the time non-stop i mean a, a great example of which also like if, if, if crossing across the film um is uh miller's crossing um oh yeah Gabriel burns character just is constantly yes. being beaten up by everybody <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, like including his love interest <laughs> yeah everybody beats him up he's he can't catch a break he's caught between two you know the warring warring crime crime families and everybody beats him up the whole time yeah. um you know um then also um, Chinatown starts with that great, you know, sequence um, where yes. I think it's even Roman Polanski in the book, controversially, sorry, everybody, but playing the, the one of the, 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 the sort of street thugs that cuts the nose of uh, Jack Nicholson's character, you know. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, 
that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do is just sort of establish very rapidly the vulnerability of the character too, and make us feel like from the outset that there's there's threats to them and that that, that anything could happen. Well, that's a really interesting thing that you bring up because, uh, you know, I love the Paris Collaborator, but because August went through so much, I got to the end of that book and was like, oh, well, his story is done. You know, like it felt like a complete story because he does, he takes a beating in that as well. And uh, I'm curious to know, when did you realise that you had more stories for this character because I was I was wrapped to come back into his world and, and be with him. Uh, yeah. So was that a plan all along or was that somewhere in the writing that you went, there's further places to go? I think – so part of this is like kind of – I've I've written before, right? So I, I've, 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 I wrote these earlier books that were sort of Melbourne um, legal thrillers and I had a – you know, I was – very inspired by um, The Wire at that point, you know, uh, David Simon. I thought that was all amazing and I wanted to tell this big, grand tale of like five books. Uh, but it's the realities and the commercial realities of publishing is that sometimes that stuff doesn't play out. So, right. And that was, you know, a bit demoralising, right? So I did come to the writing The Paris Collaborator with this idea of what can I write that's a standalone? And it was... That was very much inspired by the setting and this idea of the German occupation of Paris and what would it like to be a kind of detective character in that setting when you're in an occupied city. Uh, uh, but as I was writing it, I sort of realised, well, it would be nice to do maybe something else, but I didn't want to overcommit that idea to that idea because, it is, you know, as, as you know, as a creative, when you work on something and then, you know, for whatever reasons, often the commercial reasons, you know, mm. it doesn't come to light, light. You, um, it can be tough. So um, I didn't want to give myself this of um, thinking that far ahead. Um, so I sort of thought post-war Berlin was an interesting setting, again, mm. from that kind of conundrum of how do you take a detective and make things difficult for them? Yeah. Um, and a, a city that's completely decimated and bombed out is one way to do it because yeah. there's no street signs. Everybody's moved from their houses. How do you, how do you find a, a missing person in that environment? Uh but, yeah, so a little bit I had an idea. A little bit I had an idea that that might be something worth doing. But then, yeah, like I said, I didn't want to commit. I thought if this is the last, you know, book of mine that I ever write that I ever get published, then it's it's nice to have it standalone as well. Um, yeah. But you can see in the first book, I did seed some of a little just a yes. touch here so that if, if I was going to go down that route, there was, there was reward for a reader who's read the first book. But then with the second book, I also tried really hard to also make that standalone if you hadn't read the first one. So um, sort of trying to be a lot more pragmatic in, in the way that I approach these books. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the way I've been promoting it to the uh, listeners of the podcast has been, if you haven't read the first one, you can read this one and then you can yeah, go back right. and find out how we got here. And I don't think there is uh, the, the order. Like, of course, it's better to go Paris to Berlin, as it were, but uh, I, I don't think you, ha- you have to. Yes. Yeah. No. And that's that's very deliberate. That's very deliberate. Um, yeah. To try to. Yeah. So that. Yeah. As I said, if you've read the other one, it's a little bit rewarding in the sense that obviously you feel more familiar with the character, but there aren't that many characters that are moving across from the previous book. It's not all based on events that happened previously. It's, they're lightly referenced. 
you can yeah. pick up the second book without knowing anything and, and, and still get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, words like Easter eggs and continuity have uh, almost become words that you want to avoid, but uh, that, that, it's all there. It's all there and you can pick <laughs> up on it as you're reading. Um, I yeah. love Duchenne. I think he's a really interesting character, but the one of the things that – uh, and I can't remember if I mentioned this with the Paris collaborator, but it feels even more so because of uh, the years that have passed in uh, this latest novel, is that he is physically past his prime. Like, he is not an action hero. He gets hurt, like he's limping around in this, <laughs> yeah. you know. It, it, it's fascinating when he comes up uh, against new male characters and those male characters are often quite imposing in comparison to him. And uh, yeah. I, I'm interested to know what made you to decide uh, to uh, impose those physical limitations on him rather than have him in his prime. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, some of that is the the nature of i guess historical fiction so if i wanted to make a character that fought in the first world war he has to be of a certain age right so yeah. that was part of it and building out his character as a sort of you know a survivor of that war and and putting that into his backstory so he, he can only be of a certain age but then i thought i'd play up his um that side of it again to sort of show the vulnerability of the character i guess mm. you know uh in some ways i'm trying to do these sort of uh humanistic thrillers that are less about that are a bit more about what people are like and 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 their relationships and their internal worlds in as much as they're about uh being a, an action hero or somebody who's you know competent physically and yeah so it's not a jack reacher character in any stretch of the imagination right and and, and yeah. you know no disrespect but I, I couldn't imagine anything worse than having this sort of you know what are they called mary sue characters who can do yeah. everything yeah you know um uh, so, and that's that's again to make us identify with him a little bit. Maybe um, as you know, I don't know. Am I past my prime? <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, it's uh, that that was part of it, that vulnerability. But also, um, it, it's more interesting to tell stories. I think when um, some things that could seem like easily overcome under certain certain circumstances can provide a challenge to a character. And we know more clearly what's at stake for somebody like Duchenne. So if, if, if he, he, if he does get injured, it's not just a simple case of, you know, he just keeps on going. It's, it's going to provide and prove a, a problem for him. Um, uh, and he, there's certain ways he's, you know, even just under the fundamental basics of how does he get in and out of places, you know, like it's something I could easily just, you know, climb the wall or whatever, but not necessarily for him. So um, yeah. without it being a sort of problem. So yeah, it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's it's coming at it to make him relatable, but also again back to that whole sort of um, hard boiled kind of put your characters through the ringer. So it just gives me more opportunities to do that. Yeah, you know, it there's feels a lot of... like... sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was I was just going to say there's a lot of like as a writer, you look for ways to have different ways of coming in at some almost sort of technical level. I'm always trying to think of, oh, what's a way to make the scene a slightly more interesting or different to the last one or, or you know, add variety into the way that you're building description and, 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 and action. Yeah. Yeah. They're also, he's a character that seems like he's more respected than liked as well. And uh, I always feel a little bit sorry for him. Like, And I think that's a bit of a classic detective <laughs> thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Where it's like, he's been compromised in so many ways yes. and he's he's actually done his best and it's almost like so many people don't respect him for 
just, you know, often putting you uh, a situation ahead of what would be easier for him. Yeah, that's a re- actually that's a great insight. Actually, yeah, I have, I've never really thought about it that that, that way. But you're, you're quite right. Right, he's got the skills that people want, but that, because of how he's been asked to employ those skills previously, and yeah, people don't necessarily like him for that. Mm. Yeah, he's. Uh, do, do you ever get to a point where you're thinking? Oh man, I should, if if only he was six years younger, he could climb this wall. Or <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a fun part about it. I, I enjoy that part about it. It's it's almost like the um. It's I mean, some of the challenges too is like you, when you have limitations, it kind of makes it easier to write. Like I, I can't tell you, like writing something that's set when there are no mobile phones makes yeah. life so much easier because. When there, when I do write contemporary fiction, it's always that's the question. Why don't I just pick up the phone and call so and so? And right, you know, and you don't want to be that. You know, I'm sure you've seen that supercut on YouTube of all the times the phones out of uh, out of the house. Oh, out of reception. I hate it when people do that. That's yeah, a, it's the weakest thing in the in the world. So yeah, um, yeah. So it's, it's just yeah, the limitations make for uh, actually ease the way of, of writing because this you're more confined in, in terms of so not every idea can come forward. So, yeah. That's uh, the two things. One is the only time I've ever really enjoyed the phone being out of reception is in Hot Fuzz, and they use the reception diminishing on the train trip to show yes. you how far out is in it. Because it's done so far in advance, you go, okay, I see what you're doing, but you're doing this in a creative way, so that, that, that works for me. Yeah. Oh, and, and Edgar Wright is such a fantastic, like, visual storyteller too yeah um you know just it just tells the story really simply that yeah this moving away from london yeah yeah and, great uh, film hot fuzz and uh, the uh, the film zodiac a, a friend of mine uh, adam richard uh, he he finds that a frustrating film because there's no there's actually no denouement at the end and and because it frustrates yeah. him so much he always says well if they had mobile phones this thing would have been solved and i wouldn't have had to sit through it <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I had a question for you, and then I uh, I was telling you earlier that I caught up with your sister Claire in Sydney, and uh, she brought this up as well. So I'll so I'll let this be Claire's question. But uh, the book is split between two timelines of 30, 1936 and nineteen forty five. Uh, I'm curious to know uh, what inspired you to break the story up like this, and uh, what Claire wanted to know is. How do you write that? Do you write one timeline and then write the other, or do you bounce back and forth between it? How do you put that together? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. I think in 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 terms of it, sort of touches on a couple of elements. Um, some of them are like the, the again the technical part of the writing, but then um, part of it is also around character. Um, so the nineteen thirty six timeline. Is 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 really there to sort of show the relationship between Duchenne and his wife Sabine, in many ways, but also start to show him as a as the sort of first time he's doing this sort of de- I'm using air quotes here, but detective yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and then uh, forty five is 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 the for one of a better word the current timeline from the previous books, but but where the action is happening, you know, mm. in in the moment for him. So then. Yeah, so they're not essentially flashbacks because I sort of there's more time given to the 1936 stuff, mm-hmm. um, but it lets us see sort of Duchenne pre-war when he was a teacher w- with his family, what that was like, but also kind of 
lets me play around with the idea of this sort of rise of ideology, which is part of what the, the Berlin trade is all about. It sort of looks at, you know, communism and fascism and capitalism, you know, um, and what the way that influences countries, right? And mm. we as readers know the outcomes of this sort of thing. So already, because, you know, we've, we're aware of history, we're aware that the war ends, we're aware of things like the Cold War. So it let me sort of show the the foundations of those ideas. So when you jump forwards to 1945, where really things have hit off. I mean, we've got the Spanish Civil War going on in 36, but but really the Second World War is now been done. And also 45, it's post-war in Europe. So we, we can see the outcome again, mm. for want of a better word. Um, but I really wanted to play around that with that idea of the beginning of the Cold War. So I really wanted to firmly establish what this was like, this sort of um, 1936 with people being members of the Communist Party, you know, and, mm. and that being seen as a, a sort of, a, for many people, a valid way of considering a, a direction the world could go in. Um, but then from a sort of technical um, level as a, for, for the readers, I wanted I wanted to have a way so I could say, reassure people, like, we're actually, because we're going back to 1936, it's almost like we're starting afresh with these characters, you know. Mm. We're, we're establishing what Duchenne was like. Um, we're establishing his relationship with his daughter. We're establishing his relationship with his wife. We're seeing... In very, in some ways, that are the beginnings of this character. So, if you pick this book up, you don't, you're not really missing too much by not having read the one previously. So, mm. um, and and I was sort of like there, there's a there's a writer, um, a, a fantasy author, one of my favorite fantasy authors, but he's not very prolific, unfortunately. His name's Scott Lynch, and he wrote this book called, um, oh yeah, it was this third film, Thorns. Um, I can't remember what it's called exactly, but in that one, he uh, he tells it across two timelines, um, right. sort of showing these characters as children and characters as the adults. Um, so I wanted to use a similar. I thought, oh, that's a good idea to sort of do cross two timelines, but really invest time in both, so that it's yeah. not like a flashback and you're just doing a page here or, or whatever. Um, and yeah, so that's where I could, yeah sort of Sorry, partly was inspired. Was that the thorn of Emberlane? Is that what you were? No, that's, yeah, that's going to be the fourth one. Sorry, yeah, I've got Damn. my. It's downstairs on my bookshelf. If I was there, I'd just glance across. Mate, um, it'll it'll yeah. pop into your head uh, when you least expect it. <laughs> I'll get a text through. message at three a.m. Here it is. Yeah. Um. And and so when so when you were writing them, were you did you like write one part of the story and then write the? Next oh yeah, and then sorry. The, the second part of the question. Sorry, uh, it was a big question. Well, I plot. No, no, it's all right. This I plot. What I do is I can't. I have to, I'm a big believer in plotting the entire yeah. book out, right? Right. Um, and in some cases, that's almost like, you know, um, and the way I do it is a sort of not quite cut ups, you know, which is that sort of creative process. And Bowie used it, but, mm. you know, you'd take ideas and you'd put them all into a bag and then pull them out and see what you got, right? Mm. This is more structured than that. I know I've got plot A and plot mm. B and character arc A and character arc B. And I, I write those out sequentially in mm -hmm. my plotting and then I can feed them in on a on a big piece of cardboard you know right. my little my little squares of paper and say oh when would it make the most sense to put that bit when would it make so I know that once you get to the end of it we've told the full story and moved between the two timelines and filled in our character moments and really sort of established their motivations and then I can sit down and confidently write and not get stuck in that bit where you stop and I don't know what I'm going to do next you know mm. um and I feel that really aids, particularly when you're writing something that's has a, a detective mystery element to it, where you've got you've got to feed out the clues and ask questions of and and, and the pose new questions to the reader as 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 others are answered. You know, um, yeah. So I structure it, but then I write it sequentially. I, right. Yeah. 
And then yeah. within the uh, writing process, does anything kind of happen that takes you by surprise? Does a character just there that where you think they're going to end up, you suddenly get about two thirds of the way through and go, oh no, their their ending is going to be completely different. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, it's more in the smaller actions yeah. and the sort of character moments that you then sort of have an idea. So I have the big beats, you know, that I want to do. Like oh, I want to have this bit, and it's, it's going to be a meeting, and with it's going to be you know significant for these two characters. And the, but then what actually happens in that that moment? I haven't written that out, so I then sort of have these revelations about the characters as I'm sort of sitting there and. Um, you know, coming up with the dialogue between them as as they, you know, talking to one another. Or, or I realise that a character in this in this book, no, this is not a spoiler, but there's a sort of the, the sort of U.S. Army soldiers of driving them all around Berlin. Um, and I realise that I want to do more with that character as I'm writing it because I think that they're a really interesting way to sort of draw out aspects of other characters and introduce sort of um, perspectives on the overarching kind of setting um and yeah and so you uh, you go oh, actually i'm going to put them in more chapters you know but they're mm-hmm. not a sort of critical linchpin to the whole story that you yeah you know so uh and that stuff i really find enjoyable because you need the spontaneity like having structured it you it, it would just be really not fun to then because um yeah uh i think it's james elroy um used to write um his his structures were longer than the books themselves. Right. So he'd write his he'd plot it. Right. And it's almost like he was editing and, cre- and writing more creatively to produce that. And his books are some of them are fat, like American right. tabloid is it's like five hundred <laughs> five hundred pages. So he's written more than that in his structure and wow. notes to himself. It's in, it's just like I don't know how somebody can do that. Like it just it would feel it feels hard, like really hard. Yeah. Not to say that. There are challenges in writing, and there's definitely, but that feels like really making things hard for yourself. Yeah, yeah. some things are, uh, you know, you admire them, and you also know instinctively that is not for me. Uh, no. you, you know, uh, for anyone who enjoyed Oppenheimer, uh, this uh, book actually uh, kind of touches on stuff that's going on at the same time, even going back as far as uh, 1936 and the Spanish War. There's mentions in that film about uh, funneling money. Communism was seen as a, uh, as a, legitimate political choice for a certain while there and it's interesting in this especially in that 1936 uh, era with uh and his wife sabine uh, they have very different attitudes towards war and fighting and in a way duchenne feels quite modern in his regard to war and the effect it has on people and you know in your research was that a trait that you found that came from some people who had already fought in world war one or it was that something that you just figured that's how he would look at the world yeah it's a, it's it's a bit of it's a it's a astute question i think it's a bit of both for me right. because i know that people who i mean we don't have the language for this like survivors of the first world war often had post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. right? like and they you know um uh, and um so he's seen things and witnessed things that you know are horrific um but it is i think a bit of a modern anachronism for them for him to be and there were pacifists around like we know mm. in the 30s there was there were ideologies that, that were around but essentially he's he's not a card-carrying pacifist but i thought oh, if i kind of map that's his response to how he's trying to process that that war i mean i think there's interesting questions 
and possibly to be explored in future books around how he's how he deals with that ordeal right because mm. if we were to take a very modern lens to it to him as a character we never really see too much of his internal world around surviving a, a, the first world war and how that's influenced his psyche mm. um I focus more on it rather the way that he's resolved to to not, you know, re-enlist or to. So at the very beginning of the book, he's approached by the Allies and they ask him if he'll re-enlist. Yeah, and he says no, but they they find a way for him to still keep working with them essentially. Um, but also, you know, why he doesn't he's not the kind of character. The first thing he does arrive in Berlin, is, you know, says where's my revolver or my pistol or whatever, mm. you know. And um, so yeah, that's that's what I sort of. Yeah, wanted to have him be that. So he's also, again, to us, because if you're going to have in the first book, right, where he's forced to work for the Germans and he's also, you know, working for the the resistance um, and both situations sort of compelled to work for them, you could think, mm. well, this guy doesn't, he doesn't have any values. So the values that he exhibits are these other sort of high, not higher values, but more sort of values around uh, violence and, and war, uh, you know, which perhaps a little bit more modern, but I, I thought that was okay. I didn't think that was too much of a stretch for people. Um, although I will get contacted by people and over email, and they will hammer me about historical accuracy. <laughs> oh, not. do they write? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't write back because a, a lot of time they're wrong. They're they're finding weird connections of their own. Um, but then sometimes they're right. And and the beauty of having the the, the Berlin Trader come out is that the Paris collaborator has also been re released in a little little paperback version. Oh, great. Um, yeah, which is kind of cool because I've always wanted to have a sort of little in the back pocket kind of thing. Oh, like, yeah, uh, right. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Nice cover yeah, too. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll shoot you over a copy just so you can see, but it's um, yeah, it ties in with the other cover, but um, in having that come out, then I could just tweak one thing that was really bugging me about, about a, something that was historically inaccurate in that book. Um, oh, right. But, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was going to ask you if there was anything that decisions you made in the first book that you, you know, when you're writing the character now that you look back and you go, God damn it. <laughs> so, but it was just a, <laughs> it was just a, an, a mild inaccuracy, was it? In that one, there was an inaccuracy. There wasn't too much I would do differently. Like maybe had, with the benefit of hindsight, I might have built out a bit more with some of the um, Gestapo characters just to sort of, you were talking about Easter eggs before, just as a little Easter egg for somebody who'd read the first book, if they cared to, you know, remember that character to make it a little bit more, you know, so in the course of the story, they catch up with a few of these Gestapo guys, but um, in the in the Berlin Trader, but it would have been good to sort of make them a bit more identifiable as characters from the previous book. Other than that, I was pretty happy with it. I mean, it's always interesting, too, because I was working with a separate editor. for. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. For the, the re-edit of the, the Paris Collaborator and, and a few things around, like, again, um, just language of the time. So there was a little bit of a, a polite discussion, you know, I wouldn't even go so far as to say debate, but a, a little polite disagreement over... Um, there is a reference from a character in this in the in the Paris Collaborator, and, he, and and it's one of the few times that the Holocaust is brought up, uh, not because it didn't happen, and not because I'm <laughs> it's a denier, <laughs> Holocaust denier, yeah. but because I feel like that's such a delicate and something that needs to be given proper time to yes. really unpack and engage with. It would probably be something that we'd grapple with if I was to write a third in this series. Um, didn't want to like just like move through it too quickly or, yes. or and not give it the proper attention. But at the same time, I thought I don't want to like not mention it at all because that's almost worse. So a character yes. refers to them rounding up uh, Jews and gypsies. And though I was asked if I would consider making that change to Roma or Romani. But in 1944, even, you know, a character, would would they know, would they be that respectful of the fact that gypsies is a, you know, derogatory term? And yeah. You know, and so I figured it was okay to sort of carry that forwards, but it's kind of interesting the sorts of when we're talking about historical accuracy and, and, you know, that would have tilted it outside of historical accuracy, you know. So it's always interesting, those sorts of questions, I think. Yeah. I I always, uh, I I don't know, like, I don't know if this is correct, but for me, if language is pertinent, then it's, Mm. it should be in there. I, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if it's worthwhile putting, um, like, you, you don't want to get into censorship, but little things at the start, no. which is, you know, hey, sometimes people will use language that you might find confronting, but this is the language of the era. And yes. uh, r- please read in context, you know, it's not yes. it's not you calling someone a gypsy. It's No. That's the word. No, that that's a great there. point. That's a really good idea. I notice sometimes you see... Um, on some of the sort of uh, journalist channels on YouTube, they'll sometimes do that because they'll have quotes from the period, right? But yeah, and they'd say, "Heads up, there's going to be some language in this that's con- contextual, but some people might find it offensive." Now, I'd also think you don't hammer the point. You don't have everybody running around using, you know, using profan- you know, uh, distressing language, just enough to get it and then move forward. It's not every yeah. second word is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a, a, a there's a line between using the the correct word and also being childish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and using exactly. it too much. Uh, deliberately provocative, you know. Like, um, yeah, yeah. I, I remember yeah, there was, was a, uh, there was an episode of Mad Men where uh, they go over to Roger's place and he's putting on a party and he comes out with his new bride who's way too young for him and he performs in blackface and uh it's everyone is there, there was talk about oh you have to edit that out and it's like but when, when you watch the episode yeah. the it's it's really embarrassing also it's a character that you like but he would have done something like that and also yeah. within the scene you have the younger more progressive ad people incredibly embarrassed and not knowing what to do because yeah. he's the boss. And I feel like that's yeah. the commentary and that's why you keep the scene. It's, 
100%. I mean, that was almost a big part of what Mad Men was about, right? Like the yeah. shift, you know, uh, cultural changes and, and, and the way that people behave, even through to like that, uh, those bits where kids were constantly being like beaten by the parents yes. or whatever, like in the role of, 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 you know, that's, yeah. No, I think it's, that's, that's the, that's the essence of the, t- the show. I mean, it is, yeah. There, you, and that's why, yeah. I don't know. You're getting the whole sidetrack here, but like context is critical, right? Like, yeah. Comedians often talk about like, well, if you, you had to be in, you, you had to be there for that. You, you take one joke out of context in a, in a, in a comedy show, you haven't been there for the setup. Yeah. You don't know that it's a callback. You don't know the preceding, you know, humorous yeah. anecdote stories that I was telling that led up to this. And then it all, yeah. I mean, you, as, as well, you know, right? So yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and people, you know, I consider myself a small little L liberal, but it's, um, if, if you become militant, what you do is you empower the, uh, the the childish sides of the conservative right to then go even further. Do you know what I mean? So when yeah. when people get too on on the nose about things, then the natural thing to have happen is to have a repellent force against it, and then that's when you get people actually dialing back all the progress that's made by making horrific jokes or using horrific language with no context, and it's just to to make uh, you know. A very simple point, and it's. Uh, I find all of that stuff really frustrating. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, you know, you're just fueling them, <laughs> so don't give them any <laughs> extra fuel. Um, no. I uh, love that the book set in uh, Berlin, and did you know that you were going? And it, it, it's such an interesting time as well. In in uh, as you said, like it's. It's a mess of a city. There's uh, there's no street signs, etc. Did you know that's where you were going to go, or was there something else that drew you to that period? I I sort of because I yes, in many ways I thought as I was writing the Paris collaborator, Berlin would be an interesting place to set another one if if and it was a very lightly held idea because again I didn't want to you know upset myself by working out an entire plot and then not getting to to write the next one but um, yeah and and because the, but in some ways it was also defined for me in, in that I was writing this this the series of this what is now a series of books but where the city is a character almost so like yeah. in, the, in the in the Paris collaborator we've got you know the, the Germans are treating Paris as their you know their recreation hub for you know in the middle of the war um the Parisians are having to live with all these Germans just as for hanging out and there's this sort of it's a you know, we really want to evoke the setting there. So then it was like, well, that feels like a strong theme across all the books. Like what's an interesting city to set these things in? So mm. Berlin jumped out at me just because of that, you know, um, uh, there's this, and I have the benefit in many ways of this fantastic, you know, footage. So if, if I was writing something set in the 16th century, I would, you know, you, you're going to written texts. Yeah. There's not the benefit of photography. Paintings are obviously a lot of the times, you know, propaganda or, you know, pieces. They're not necessarily realistic i mean not to say that photos and film can't be propaganda but it it also gives you a sense of like the time right like so um and i'd seen these flyovers that the allies took after they came into um berlin uh in black and white uh, of the city and it's just devastated right um and then i thought because i like to write these stories about civilians and i you know that's my sort of that that humanistic thrillers is going well, well how can we write about the stories around civilians and tell the civilian side of war, which is very much what the Paris collaborator was doing. But this one, then I, I, I was like, it, Berlin is 
is great for that because I, I knew lightly from history that obviously the Soviets, had, the, the Russians had come in and bombed the hell out of the place, mm. you know, and we see that being repeated again in Ukraine, right? So it's just shell, 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 and leave nothing, just, you know, total, you know, lay, lay everything to waste and then roll in. Um, and there was a, there's a book that I um, then read, which was a first person uh, diary, uh, account written by a journalist. Um, she wrote it anonymously. She since people know who this person was after she passed away. They they figured out who it was. But it's called A Woman in Berlin, and it's it's about her the experience of a woman in Berlin surviving when the Soviets came in, and and was not pretty. But it gives mm. you some very key little insights, and and it's building off that where I get these ideas. So like in the book, there's a bit where um, they go to a doctor, and the doctor's using the um, X-ray. Um, x-rays as windows because all the windows have been shattered so to create a sort of semi-sterile environment to put all these x-rays up and I thought that's just so visually fascinating it actually happened you know they'd gone to visit doctor in in, she she talks about this so I thought got to put that in the book right so you I start at the sort of quite literally at the helicopter level of seeing the bombed out city but then move into the sort of first-hand accounts and and able to build it that way and um I knew less about it than Occupy Paris. Not that I'm an expert on Occupy Paris, but uh, and it was fascinating to research. And 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 after a while, I had to uh, Bernie, my wife. I said, uh, I mean, she was probably getting sick of all my terrible, you know, <laughs> the the, all, the the terrible sort of cape capability of humanity to be awful to itself. But um, I had to stop. I had to stop the research after a certain draw line in the sand because right. I was getting too overwhelmed with you know with everything. So yeah. yeah. It's. Uh, I hope you were a history nerd in school, so it was easy to segue <laughs> into it because because there yeah. has to be so much research to get all of this as accurate as possible. Yeah, more in uni, I think, and in, in, I did I did a little bit in, in in high school, but I was you know I was more into my fantasy books, you know, then yeah. science fiction and stuff. But it's a good grounding, I think, for what you're going to write. And I still, I mean, I still try to read fairly broadly, right? But I think yeah. fantasy. For the most part, science fiction less so, but it depends on the writer, actually. To be fair, but that's about world building, and it's sort of mm. you learn so much from that. But yeah, um, uni is where I came to it more, and then you know, like I had the benefit of, of, of fortunately being able to, well, being subjected to uh, a law degree, and and you learn very research quickly, and yeah, wade your way through dry stuff, and so that it's those soft skills that I got out of uh, uni is really. I'm able to do, but I, I find it genuinely interesting. Like, absolutely, um, you know, it's it's fun to pick a point in history and try to really burrow down and find out interesting little facts. The yeah. challenge then is not to just make your book. Yeah, all the facts I learned, you know, and yes. like, you know, just to brain dump onto the reader, and you know, yeah. I have read those books. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> so have I. So, you're exactly. like, hang on a sec. Wasn't this meant to be a thriller? No, no. Yeah. Um, you know, you, they always say you should never judge a book by its cover, but uh, I've got to be honest, your covers are fantastic. Uh, yeah. With uh, the artist, is it's uh, Deborah Bilson. Uh, do you have any yes. uh, contact with Deborah beforehand or does Deborah read your book or how, how do you come up with these images? So I... I basically send the the, the 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 publishers send a brief through to to her. I don't believe she read it. Maybe she. I mean, I don't. I know they share the the, the manuscript, so they can sort of dip in and get a few ideas. Mm. Um, it's possible. I I did reach out to her after I'd seen the covers and after we were sort of it had been published over um and you know, um tagged her in on um Instagram and struck up a bit of a conversation with her there. So um that was lovely. Um. 
but yeah, what that what I do get is they show me, um, and this one more so than sometimes others, uh, uh, they gave like four options. So she'd done up four possible covers for um, the Berlin Trader, capturing various different aspects of the book, and then along with the publisher, I kind of work through with them which which one we think is the one to go with, and I give sort of then a little bit of fine tuning feedback on that cover. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, and mostly that's around. Again, uh, I'm not a history uh, sort of expert or scholar, but I can, you can sometimes pick up on things that are slightly not quite historically accurate in the current. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly when it comes to the Second World War, like I know people, obviously there's people who really can name the planes and name the tanks and all that, so I'm not yeah. one of those people. But um, and I was enough on the first cover of the Paris Collaborator to realise that the planes flying overhead were German and they wouldn't have had air force, at the, right. you know, sorry, were allied planes and they wouldn't be flying over at that point. But um, in this one, uh, the Berlin Trader, the, the, we, we put the Reichstag in it, you know, just to make sure it was a sort of identifiable sort of um, monument. So I gave a little bits of feedback like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And then there's a, yeah, it's uh it's a great process to go through. It's always exciting to see the covers. Um, it's always that interesting thing. It's in the contract with any writer. The cover is the, the sort of at the decision of the the publisher. But um, most publishers are fantastic in that they bring you in and, and want to engage in the conversation with you about it. So it's not like they go, "Well, we'll decide and we'll tell you what it is." Yeah. But you can imagine there might be some difficult writers out there. And interestingly. The title of the book is counted as being part of the cover, so um, right the author doesn't get to determine the title. Right. Um, but in this case, I did because um, they'd come up with the Paris Collaborator for the first one, which I thought was a fantastic title. And then so yeah. it was just a case of like building off that structure. So it was the, you know, the Berlin Trader um, made sense, picked yeah. up from where the other one was. And we can ask the same question in the Paris Collaborator's all these ideas around what collaboration means. And in the Berlin Traders, all these ideas around what to tra- what what are you traded to your own ideology or traded to your nation you know who who sets who defines you like you don't really define whether you're a trader or not right it's usually yes. like well you were born in this country and now you've made a decision to disagree with it in some way you are now a trader right yes. so it's those sorts of things that um I like to explore as well in these things so yeah well you know i think i think both books are quite cinematic like the you know i'll, I'll speak Broadly, so for people who may not have read them, I don't ruin anything, but the the tank in the Paris Collaborator is some widescreen action. And in this, there's <laughs> the, the, as you said, the, even the flying into Berlin, there's the stuff yeah. on the motorbike, there's the denouement. Uh, even there's a scene with uh, Duchenne and uh, it, it feels a it's it's got the tension of uh, the opening to Inglorious Bastards with uh, Duchenne and someone and they're knocking on the door. You know, it's uh, I'm, as, as I said, I'm speaking as obliquely as possible yeah. here. Um, and you know, as I said to you earlier, I, I really like Duchenne. He's a character that I want to catch up with more. Do, how many more adventures do you think this guy has? Uh, a in you, and B mm. before he has so many concussions, he's put into protocols. <laughs> like yeah. he's taken a beating. <laughs> yeah, i i had a I have an idea for an another one coming out of this. Uh, so you know, I, I kind of couldn't stop myself once I started writing the Berlin Trader. I started thinking about other ways we could take this. And and as you're doing the research too, it's like you come across these fascinating points in history or you're reminded of something so i would like to do something around the berlin airlift so mm-hmm. you know which is when uh, if 
the Soviets surrounded Berlin because Berlin was in East Germany. Um, and so the allies couldn't bring in anything on land. So they had to fly these planes and it was a massive logistic operation to, yeah. to keep uh, Western. They were really trying to strangle the, the allies out of, out of West Berlin so they could have all of Berlin, all of the capital. And when you think about it, there was a benefit of hindsight. Like, well, you must be mad. You're going to put the center, well, not this capital, but you're going to put yourselves surrounded by essentially what then became your enemy mm. in the middle of their territory. It just defies uh, defies logic. But yeah, so that would be, I think, would be an interesting time in history to set it. But I found also I'm sort of tracking more towards a sort of espionage type novels in the sense that it'd be harder to tell a entirely a detective story, you know, on the street. Um, and and more of the sort of dynamics of politics and 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 um, the sort of backrooms, grey areas mm. of you know in, in, interpolitical you know relationships and everything would be part of it. So um, I think that's part of it there as well. Yeah, I'd um, I hope you don't look. I'm going to make a suggestion of something I'd like to read, which you can a ignore and b if I accidentally touch on anything, we'll just edit this point out or I'll just uh, keep all of this in and. Uh, get everyone to forget but anyway i would i'm so into this character i'm i'd like to see what his reaction to the bomb being dropped is uh like like the emotional response because he's such a pacifist that uh, that was looming all the way through this story because we have the we have the knowledge of history that he doesn't experience so that played a part in uh was in my head all the way through also like i'm really curious about the young fella in World War One, uh, you know, like what's he like? Mm. Because it, it's the the term back then. It was shell shocked, wasn't it? wasn't it wasn't PTSD. Yes. So uh, no, I've, yes, I've shell shocked. Yeah, I've kind of wondered, man, what was this guy like before he experienced shell shocked? And was there, you know, he seems to have a, you know, we see him saving children. I wondered if uh, he came across children or in some way in World War One. Oh, but anyway, I've I've been thinking he, heaps he, about the books. He, <laughs> See, now you're giving me ideas, so um, I think that's yeah, <laughs> that would good? be fantastic to put that in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that would be a great thing to see. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Talk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I said uh, I, I really like him, you know, and I really liked him at the end of the first one. So then, when you uh, got in touch and said the, he's he's back, and I was like, oh great, well I want to see what's happening, and that's why I opened uh, the first chapter. I went, what are you doing to my man? Like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I am. I also think that there's also the possibility to introduce because you have this, established some other characters around his family, and like even like with his daughter. By the time we get to nineteen, and then this is not a spoiler, but by by the time we get to nineteen forty-five, she's now a journalist. So yeah. I thought, well, maybe there's a way to tell from two perspectives, or bring you know, and and have almost like a generational story. Yeah. You know? So even if if Duchenne becomes sort of more like retired. Um, there's a fantastic series called um, uh, by Mick Heron writes. So Slow Horses is the first, oh, but then they've turned yep. it into an Apple TV series. Yeah, um, and in that, the character has a father um, that he goes and visits um, and has all these sort of insights. So Duchenne could be that sort of you know sort of more of a sort of venerable sage type character she goes to for advice, sort of thing. But um, yeah, yeah, 
that's another idea I was throwing around there, sort of thing. Right? Yeah, you could. Uh, you, you, there's there's so much you can do with a character. I, I'm looking forward to his retired days in uh, in Australia, where he gets embroiled in something <laughs> that he doesn't want to deal with, called you know the the Dubbo detective, and he's like, oh, no, yeah, I'm exactly. here to be retired." <laughs> But uh, no, I I think uh, this whole world is great, and uh, he's a fascinating character. That yeah, the daughter, you know, like she's uh, she seems like a perfect product of her mum and dad, and uh, you you know you could end up having like this weirdly militant pacifist, or uh, you know someone who knows how to engage with violence but feels awful for it uh, while being a journalist. It's uh, uh, there's endless possibilities all the way through. So I think it should be wrapped with the, where this story is going. Um, if uh, when people read this uh, book and uh, and your previous work, uh, are there any movies, TV shows, etc., that you'd re- recommend for them to check out if they want to stay in this type of world? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, I know that there is a for the for the for the Paris collaborator. I have not seen this, but I hear it's well regarded. It's called The Village, I think, and it's a it's a story about um, the collaboration set in. It's a French series set in the village right. in um, France. Um, I, I did start watching a TV series called um, Shadowlands. Um, yeah. Uh, which was is, was set in Berlin just after the war, but it wasn't it wasn't great. Um, right. uh, no, it wasn't Shadowlands. It was Shadow Play. Sorry, excuse me, oh, because right. they used a Joy yep. Division song at the beginning. Um, right, it wasn't fantastic. Um, I think, but it's it's set there. I mean, no, that's just my view. But um, yeah, and it was a big co-pro with like German and and, and American actors, and it was pretty crazy. Um, had Nina Hoss in it, who's been in a heap of German TV stuff, and they used her in um, um, a bunch of American shows whenever they need a sort of German intelligence officer. She's always turning up right. in that. But, um, yeah. but then it had Michael C. Hall. Obviously, Dexter was in it and um, Taylor Kitsch. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Friday Night Lights, obviously. Yep. Tim, Tim Riggins is in it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it was um, – they were sort of trying to do that Berlin Babylon kind of thing, but with American cast. Um, Berlin Babylon is great, but that's that's pre-war, and that's amazing yeah. TV series. Um, and a detective story set set in Berlin. So um, those are some ones sort of from a from a film sort of TV side. In terms of reading, like I, I mentioned, um, Mick Heron, just because of the sort of his characters are not heroic in any way. Yeah. Um, and so that whole. Uh, um, Slow Horses series, which they're about six. That's very contemporary setting, though. But they are that they they're not like it's sort of espionage thrillers. But they are they are not competent in any way, and that's yeah sort of the point of the story. Yeah, um, that's that's great for that. But I tend to avoid reading other books that yeah. the period, yeah. um, fiction books, because I just sort of want to keep my garden clear of other people's stuff. So if I do cross over, I feel ethically okay about the fact that I've sort of crossed it straight into other territory, but I haven't accidentally picked up something that somebody else has done, you know, it's yeah. kind of, that's a, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a tricky one. It's tricky in the world of comedy as well. It's almost like, uh, it, I can't talk about anything uh, that's going on now uh, and, and see someone else who might be, you know, doing like commenting yeah. on stuff. I want my stuff to be, definitively through the prism of this idiot rather than 
You know, the subconscious <laughs> yeah. picks up on bits and pieces. Uh, a quick question about Slow Horses. I've only, I only know it from, like, I'd heard of the books, but I know it from the TV series. Uh, and I really yeah. love the TV series. Do, do you feel like they're as close as they can be to the experience yes. of the books? Yeah, they're really they're spot on, but also they've made improvements. I think that work better for the the, the form of TV. So they've yeah. made it a they're a little bit more. It's a, in the books. It's very grey, and sometimes the the resolutions happen off off screen for one of the better words. So they'll do mm. something, and then you'll find out later on how it resolved. They let the characters actually do those resolutions. We're very frustrating as a TV viewer to sort of find out. Oh, and then two days later, this thing happened, and they weren't anywhere near it. Yeah. And so. But you can sort of do that in a book, but yeah. you can't really do in a TV where, like, yeah. you know, um, they've done a really good job of two of capturing the character, a lot of the character, the essence of the characters, um, even though the book itself is written from their perspective. So you get a lot of their internal world, so the inter- interiority, it's, mm. as they like to call it <laughs> yeah. in writing, but internal world stuff. Um, and that character, the hacker um, character, Ronnie Ho, is just such a dislikable but fantastically humorously written character in the books it's almost worth going back and just reading though to, to, to see how heron writes him um yeah yeah uh yeah they i think they've done a fantastic job of adapting it um obviously anything with gary oldman is worth watching so you know oh mate i think has I he done it. any stinkers i'm trying to think i don't know like even a stinker's still gonna be fun you know um you know he, <laughs> i think he when he filmed his uh uh very small but pivotal part in Oppenheimer. Um, I, I think he. I think that's a wig that he's wearing because they couldn't because uh, yeah, he was yeah. making slow horses and they had to keep that awful greasy mane that he has, yeah, which yeah, I love so yeah, much. Yeah, no, but he no, is. Yeah. It, it's a tour de force, and everyone around yeah. him is great as well. Yeah, yeah. No, Jackson Lamb. It's funny. The um, almost the first couple of books you think it's going to be because they like to when they write it crime series they like to name it after the main character right and mm. i always thought after the first two books they're going to call it the river cartwright series because he's in it so much right so he's a sort of point, point of view character at the first book who turns up and is made to be a slow horse and that's how you learn about the world of the slow horses yeah um but it's actually the jackson lamb series is what they call it now because he's such a um despicable delikable character yeah. i mean you get the sense of mick heron is just really using him to sort of just be an outlet for sort of ideas that are unpopular but also a way of writing them in a funny way and you know yeah yeah like because of who that character is he can get away with quite a lot in terms of and more so in the books than in the tv series like they rein it in the TV series. right but he's uh he's quite dislikable like really uh dislike but but fun dislikable like you know he's yeah. obnoxious but but fun um and funny, yeah. No, it's it's it's. Uh, they've done a fantastic job with the TV series so far. Those first two two se- seasons are, are great so far. And I know they're going to the do third uh, one's like coming out in December. Yeah, she, I think they shoot them back to back, right? Back, so yeah. I could be wrong about that, but yeah, yeah. So there might be three and four. I mean, that's it, probably the only way you can get Gary Oldman. Just commit him to. Yeah, well, you know, it was yeah. funny. The first season ended, and there was a trailer for the second. And you, you you're watching, <laughs> you you watch it. You get to the end of the first, and the way TV is now these days, you're like, oh, I hope I get another season. Oh, I am. There's a trailer. Yeah, this exactly. is great. So, <laughs> no question hanging out. Will it be picked up for a second series? This yeah, is great. Exactly. I think <laughs> I think Gary Ullman said he'd be quite happy if this is his final 
role. Like if he just kept making big series, <laughs> he'd he'd be wrapped. And I and poor River, I love River. He's kind of like the anti James Bond, who uh, he's just doing his best, and he desperately wants to be the guy. And Jack Landon, so yes. just likable. You know, I, the first thing I'd seen him in was Dunkirk, and it, it, I immediately was won over to him as an actor when he gets pulled out of the yes. plane and he has that very English, uh, you know, good evening <laughs> as he's pulled out. And I was yeah, like, yeah, exactly I, w- right. I want this guy to succeed. So I bring that into Slow Horses and he's just <laughs> a bit fucking useless. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it is a great series. So uh, thank you for chatting to me and uh, the listeners today. Uh, where, where is the best place for uh, people to pick up the Berlin Trader? Oh, it's out in, it's out in bookstores uh, for yep. those who want the physical copy. Um, there's obviously ebooks are available through all the usual places. And then not quite yet, but in the next coming weeks, the audio book will also be out via Audible, Belinda, all the usual places, through your, through your library, listening apps or whatever. Yeah. Ah, so. Are you reading it? Mm. No, no, no. They get a, they get a professional, a professional reader of audio books to do it. But yeah. Um, yeah, that, it's, a, it's so impressive what they're able to do. How quickly they're able to turn around and be spot on with the words on the page. It's it's a it's a real art, and also then to sort of bring an interpretation because I don't imagine they spend hours and hours and hours, you know, figuring out how they're going to play each scene like you would in a TV show or, or a film. They just do it on the fly and do such a good job of it. Um, Stephen Perring is the the guy who read the first and will now be reading the the sequel. Yeah, the the, the Berlin Trader as well. Oh, that's great. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when the, when this third book is uh, ready to uh, come out, you've got to let us know and uh, come back. You should be uh, really wrapped with this one. Uh, I love the first oh, thanks, one. thanks, Justin. And, mate, it's, as I said, I'm happy to catch up with this guy for as long as he can be gaffered together and, and keep his wits <laughs> about him. So, uh, congratulations. Where can people uh, find you on the socials? Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, Alex Hammond, author that's about it. I think everything else is going sideways very quickly, right, in terms of social. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it really is. And, uh, you know, I think about six or seven years ago, I looked at TikTok and went, you know what, I can hear the natural TikTok of life uh, enough. And I, I decided I was happy to uh, not be across it. So I'm, I'm pretty much Instagram yeah. as well. So they can find you there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, let's chat again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. Great to chat. Thanks to Alex for joining me today, and please check out his novel if you can. Look, selling books is a tough game, and I'd love to read more about this character. And uh, I think once you have a taste of it, I think you'll want more of this character as well. So, look, it's coming up to October already. Christmas is just around the corner. So, even if you don't buy the book for yourself, maybe it might make a good Christmas present for someone you know who enjoys well-written thrillers. But I loved it and uh, can't wait to have Alex back on to discuss more in the future. Uh, Life is all over the shop for me at the moment. Uh, I don't think that is anything new for anyone at this point of the year. So I'm not quite certain when the next season of Big Squid will be back, but hopefully there'll be at least a couple of little specials here and there to keep you going. If you feel like you're missing out on the Big Squid community, there's still episodes going up on Patreon. 
uh, where you can catch up with me and all of the people there. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Justin Hamilton. That's patreon.com forward slash Justin Hamilton. You'll find a tier that suits you. Uh, we're about to do a Patreon-only uh, long-form story, which has been promised for a month. I've got to be honest, uh, it's still on the way, but it's very close to finally being recorded. And, uh, yeah, I think you'll be up for that. That'll be fun. As I said, there's just been a few little things going on that uh, I reckon I'll be able to talk about in the future. I'm good, but a lot of stressful things going on around me. And I'm back at the chase, and Question Everything is coming up soon. So we're in pre-production for that and doing stand-up. And, yes, something had to give. Something had to give. And then I turned 51, and I'll tell you what gave there. It was my hope of ever taking a good photo again. <laughs> anyway, we'll save that for a discussion another time. Uh, great to be back in your ears. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please go and check out The Berlin Trader by A.W. Hammond. And I thought today we could finish with a quote about thrillers, it's from Daniel Craig, and it really sort of fits the character of Auguste Duchesne, who is Alex's main guy. I found this quote, and I went, yep, this sums up this poor character. Daniel Craig says, The worst situation you can have in a thriller is a lead who looks like he can handle himself. Ah, Duchesne, he can barely handle himself, and that's what makes those books so unstoppable. All right. Thanks for listening in and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Until then. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.